Hi, and welcome to Mogul's Interview Series. I'm your host, Jessica Lips, and it's my honor to welcome our next guest, Dr. Michio Kaku. Dr. Kaku is a world-renowned physicist who is the co-founder of String Field Theory and a professor of physics at the City University of New York. He hosts a regular radio talk show program and is the author of numerous New York Times best-selling books. Dr. Kaku's latest book, The Future of Humanity, has just come out, and we get to speak with him about it today. Dr. Kaku, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So there's a lot to talk about in this book, and we're going to mm -hmm. dive into it in just a second. But first, I want to know a little bit about you and to start really at the beginning. So what does your name mean? Michio means the way, the path. You look at Taoism, Tao is the same character mm -hmm. as Michi. Michi means road, path, the way, right? Okay. That's what Michio means. And Kaku means happiness will come. The road that brings happiness and enlightenment, because that's Taoism. I love that. <laughs> So where were you born? I was born in California in San Jose, which is now the heart of Silicon Valley. But when I was born, it was all apple orchards, now alfalfa fields. So how did you discover science? Did that come up as a kid? When I was eight years old, something happened which changed my life. Everyone was talking about the fact that a great scientist had died, but they printed a picture in the evening newspaper, a very famous picture, of his desk. And the caption said, unfinished manuscript from the greatest scientist of our era. I said, what? Unfinished? Why couldn't the greatest scientist of our era finish this book? Later, I found out that the man was Albert Einstein, and the book was The Theory of Everything. He wanted an equation one inch long that would allow him to, quote, read the mind of God. And I said to myself, wow, that's for me. That's what I want to work on. I want to work on the theory of everything. So did you actually follow through on that wish at age eight? Yeah, well, I was just a little punk kid in California, and I built an atom smasher when I was in high school, particle accelerator. It got me into Harvard, and then I began starting to work on what is called string theory, which we think is the fabled theory of everything. And that one-inch equation that summarizes string theory, that's my equation. String field theory summarizes all of string theory into an equation one inch long. Oh my gosh. And where are we with this theory of everything? Because that isn't yet solved, right? Yeah, it's not That's... in its final form. Now we know that there's another theory out there that includes membranes as well as strings like beach balls, spheres. And that theory is not yet finished. That's called M-theory, M for membrane. Some of the finest minds and brains on the earth are working on M-theory, and we haven't cracked it yet. I'm working on that in my spare time whenever I'm on the road on an airplane, but we haven't cracked it yet. You're working on string field theory, you're working on M-theory, you're working on the theory of everything. That's right. Simultaneously, you're a professor and you're writing these books. How do you have the time for all of it? Well, I realized that I can talk to 20 kids and bore them to death, or I can talk to 20 million kids and bore them to death too. <laughs> <laughs> so I realized that in the media, you can reach a lot more people than direct one-to-one -one contact. Mm -hmm. And the university has given me a license to do a lot of public speaking, to spread the name of the university. And for me, it's very nice because I like to engage the public uh, because I am a professor. We professors like to pontificate about everything. You have written many different books. Your newest one is called The Future of Humanity. Why this book and why now? 
We are entering a new era of space exploration. For 50 years, we've simply been spinning wheels around the Earth. NASA is basically an agency to nowhere. It doesn't go anywhere, but now things are changing. Just a few weeks ago, millions of people tuned in to the launch of the Falcon Heavy rocket. That was no ordinary rocket. That was a moon rocket financed by a private individual, Elon Musk, a billionaire building a moon rocket of his own. Prices have dropped, opening up the heavens for exploration. You realize that movie, The Martian, with Matt Damon? That movie cost more than an actual mission to Mars that the Indians did, 70 million versus 100 million. So Hollywood could actually finance a Mars rocket, if it felt like. That's how cheap things have become. And the Falcon Heavy was actually a reusable rocket a rocket that could be used again, which may reduce the cost by a factor of 10. So that's why I say we're entering a new golden era in space travel. Kids are getting interested. The public is starting to wake up to it. The president signed an executive order saying, yes, it's the moon, on to Mars and the asteroids and beyond. So we're entering a new era different from what happened in the 1960s. Because back then, rockets were very expensive. Today, prices have dropped to the point where Hollywood movies cost more than a ship to Mars. But it's still not inexpensive. So if I read your book correctly, I saw that eventually, once all of these titans from Silicon Valley are done helping with the funding, it'll be $200,000 round trip per passenger to go to Mars. Is that correct? Just to go up to space and come back to be one of the first tourists in outer space costs about $200,000 per person. Okay? Per person. Okay. Right. Now, to go to the International Space Station, go in an orbit around the planet Earth, that costs roughly 20 million. But that's with today's prices. Elon Musk wants to drop things by a factor of 10 to make it within the realm of a middle-class person. He wants to have maybe a thousand people per rocket shipped to Mars, creating a colony, a settlement of maybe a million people by dropping the cost of space travel. And that's what's new about this whole thing. You know, back in 1966, when we built the Apollo space probe, NASA's budget was 5% of the entire federal budget. That is unsustainable. You can't divert 5% of everything there is in the budget to the Apollo space program. So now it's 0.5% of the federal budget. Hmm. So prices have dropped and rockets have become more powerful and reusable. You know that after World War II, GIs couldn't buy a car, but then the used car market hit the market and teenagers all of a sudden bought used cars, creating a whole youth culture. Mm. Same thing with reusable rockets. We think that once reusable rockets hit the marketplace commercially, it'll drop the cost by a factor of 10, making space tourism something for a Sunday afternoon. For a Sunday afternoon, but it takes a while to get to space, right? This, the booster rocket itself, will go into space in just a few minutes. However, to go to the moon takes about three days. So you can go on Monday and come back by Friday, a trip to the moon. Now, Mars, of course, is big time. That'll take two years for a round trip mission to Mars. That's gonna take a lot more effort. That's gonna be much more expensive. But you know, we're going back to the moon at the end of next year, December, 2019, we're going to have an unmanned probe, the Orion spacecraft, go around the moon. And just a few years after that, humans will go back to the moon after a 50-year gap. 
And that's why I'm saying that we're witnessing a new renaissance in space travel. It's no longer so expensive. We no longer have the Cold War rivalry beating the Russians to go to the moon. No, Elon Musk has a vision, and that vision is to become a multi-planet species because it's too dangerous to put life on just one planet. You know, the dinosaurs had no space program. And that's why they're not here today. How come there are no dinosaurs? Because they didn't have a space program. We do have a space program, so we can avoid some of the catastrophes that befell the dinosaurs. It's wild to me that this is happening. Reading your book really felt like watching a science fiction movie come to life, and that was a bit overwhelming. Who would have thought in the last generation that the Chinese and the Indians would take a front row with regards to space exploration? The Indians already put a space probe to Mars. The Chinese wants to plant their Chinese flag onto the moon, well, no sooner than 2025. And it means that there's a whole new ball game now. It's different than the way it was when we learned about the space program, that it was expensive and we had to beat the Russians. Now it's a whole new ball game. In fact, another Silicon Valley billionaire, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, the richest man on earth, has funded an entire spaceport in Texas. He doesn't have to go to Cape Canaveral. He has his own private spaceport and he has a rocket to take you into space, the Blue Origin series of rockets. And so you see, it's not just one Silicon Valley billionaire. Mm -hmm. There's a fleet of them. Richard Branson and the Google billionaires, they want to mine the asteroids. It's a whole new ball game because prices have been dropping. And when do you think that the average person will be able to go into space? When do you think we're really going to start colonizing and living there and that this is going to start taking off? Well, if Richard Branson has his way, just within the next few years, Spaceship Two will take tourists into outer space. Tickets are expensive, about $200,000 per person. Mm -hmm. And eventually, if Amazon has its way, uh, Amazon wants to have a delivery system to the moon. <laughs> Just like Amazon today has a delivery system here on the planet Earth, Jeff Bezos has said that we want to do the same thing for the moon. So lunar tourism is a possibility. Already people are thinking of signing up to get a honeymoon on the moon, for example. Things that were impossible and preposterous during the 60s are now being talked about today because there's a new renaissance in space exploration. So as exciting as going to Mars and the moon seems, in your book you were talking about muscular atrophy that happens along the way and having yeah. to exercise for That's two right. hours a day. Right. And you were talking about the dust storms that take place on Mars right. and about the increased radiation and the exposure right. for cancer. So when I read about all of that and more, I kind of thought... I don't know if Mars is right for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Let's face it, Mars is not for everyone, but already people have volunteered, even if it's a one-way mission. Even a one-way mission, people have already signed up to volunteer to go to Mars. But let's be very clear about this. Mars is not the Earth. It's very cold on Mars. We're going to have to heat up the planet, and there are no plants to grow on Mars. That means that we're going to have genetically modified plants that'll grow in a carbon dioxide-rich atmosphere that is cold. So we could do this, create a whole fleet of farms that exist on Mars so that we can create agriculture on Mars. And then to heat up the planet, one proposal is to use satellites that can beam solar energy down to the ice caps to begin to melt the ice caps so that Mars becomes more Earth-like. In other words, on the Earth today, we are terraforming the Earth because we have global warming. 
population pressures and we're changing the oceans. <laughs> Against our will, we are actually terraforming and changing the planet Earth. We want to do that deliberately for Mars to make Mars more Earth-like. So it's not such a frozen, desolate landscape. Mm -hmm. So if you see life on Mars in the future, do you see life on other planets as well? Well, after Mars, some people think Titan is a possibility, a moon of Saturn. The moon of Saturn has a lot of methane gas. That could become a gas station. A gas station in outer space would be Titan because it has so much methane. And my colleague Stephen Hawking has said the next target is the stars. We want a starship. He's back what is called the Breakthrough Starshot program where another billionaire has dumped $100 million to send postage stamp chips on a parachute inflated by laser beams to 20% the speed of light. This is well within the laws of physics off-the-shelf technology, building monster lasers to energize parachutes to send them whizzing at 20% the speed of light. In 20 years, we're on a new planet uh, going around another star. It turns out that Proxima Centauri, the closest star, has an Earth-sized planet going around it, ready-made for us. There's already a target chosen for this poacher stamp starships. Now, in my book, of course, I address the other question, well, what about a real starship like the Enterprise or the Millennium Falcon? What about Captain Kirk going to the stars? Well, that'll take more time. We're talking about the next century when we might have fusion power. Fusion rockets, antimatter rockets, ramjet fusion engines. These are some of the mechanisms that we're thinking about for the next century that'll take something like the Enterprise to the nearby stars. That's amazing. And here you are talking about the next century, but in this century, another thing that you address in your book is robots. So could you talk to us a little bit about robots in the future? Because that's also a little bit overwhelming to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, who's going to do the heavy labor of building these gigantic spaceports on Mars? That's a lot of work. If you saw the movie Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger, gigantic dome cities on Mars and huge palatial apartments and stuff. Who's going to be building all that stuff? That's where robots come in, because robots are very good at repetitive tasks. Like if something is prefab, it's repetitive, they can start to build prefabricated buildings. And we know the Martian soil is such that you can make bricks, bricks out of the Martian soil. That is a real possibility. And so scientists are already beginning to work out the engineering of what it would take to build a city on Mars. Now, the first city on Mars is not going to be impressive. We're going to have lava tubes, underground caves on the surface of Mars that'll be perhaps the first Mars base to protect us against radiation, against micrometeorites. We'll be underground. But after that, who wants to be underground all the time? We want to build these dome cities, and that means using nanotechnology and using artificial intelligence. So robots will be useful to do the heavy labor, the heavy lifting to create cities on Mars. In your book, you talk about in addition to doing the repetitive tasks, it is possible to program a robot to have intelligent thought, and it is possible for a robot to eventually use that and take over. Right so now we have a battle of billionaires. On one hand, we have Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook saying artificial intelligence will create new jobs, industry, prosperity, a tremendous trove of wonders from artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Elon Musk of Tesla Motors and SpaceX says, not so fast. One of these days they could get to the point where they want to take over. 
put us in zoos, throw peanuts at us, and make us dance behind bars like we do with bears and monkeys. I think in some sense, both are partially right. That in the next few decades, Zuckerberg is right. We're talking about new industries, new jobs, new possibilities. For example, your car is gonna become a robot. You'll talk to your car. You'll argue with your car. The car will park itself. Your car will become a robot. So the robotics industry is going to be bigger than the automobile industry. It'll absorb the automobile industry. So your short term, we're talking about jobs to repair, design, fix, maintain robots. Mm -hmm. Long term, however, let's not be stupid. Long term, yeah. they could start to turn on us. Now, what is the tipping point? The tipping point is when machines become self-aware. Now, robots do not know they are robots. You can't go up to a robot and say, congratulations, you just won this prize, you just beat this human. Nothing, you get nothing from them because they're adding machines. They add very fast, giving the illusion that they're thinking, but they're just adding machines. But once they become self-aware, then we have to put a chip in their brain to shut them off if they have murderous thoughts. And do you think we'd always be able to track when they're having murderous thoughts? I think so, because right now robots are as smart as a cockroach. Okay. A retarded, lobotomized cockroach. That's how smart robots are. They can barely walk across the room, robots. However, I can see the time when they'll be as smart as a mouse, then as smart as a rat, and a rabbit, and a cat, and a dog. But you see, dogs especially are not quite sure what a human is. Dogs think that humans are, in some sense, dogs, top dogs while they are the underdog. Mm -hmm. That's why they slobber all over us. But monkeys, monkeys know that they are not human. <laughs> monkeys <laughs> know they are monkeys, not humans. Right. So when robots become as smart as monkeys, that's the point when we have to say, okay, let's put a fail-safe system on them to make sure that they don't take over. But that's probably the end of the century. We have plenty of time to prepare for that. Okay, so the other part of your book that I'd like to talk about is the future of humans and lifespan. Mm -hmm. So this idea of the fountain of youth. It used to be hokum and a bunch of nonsense talking about longevity and the fountain of youth. Now we scientists are taking it very seriously. First of all, we've isolated many of the genes that control the aging process. Process. You take the genes of old people, in the future we'll do it by the millions, the genes of young people, mm -hmm. and see where the difference is, and that's where aging is concentrated. Now take a car. Where does aging take place in a car? Well, the engine. That's because you have moving parts, combustion, oxidation in the engine. Well, what's the engine of a cell? The mitochondria. And where is air buildup in the genes? Where do we have misspellings of the genes? The mitochondria. Mm -hmm. So one day we're going to fix it. One day we'll have gene therapy to fix some of these broken genes. Now you realize that aging is to a large degree influenced by genes. Take a look at the Greenland shark. The Greenland shark lives over 400 years in age. How do we know that? You analyze the eyeball. Each eye adds a layer every year, like tree rings. You can count them. And sure enough, Greenland sharks live over 400 years of age. Wow. So it's genes. That's what separates us from the Greenland shark. And we're now finding those genes, and we can even stop the clock. There's an enzyme called telomerase that allows you to stop the aging process in a cell. Now, let's be clear about this. There's a side effect. Cancer cells also use telomerase. That's one of the secrets behind why cancer cells kill you. Cancer cells are immortal. They live forever. They simply divide, forming a tumor, which kills you. So because they are immortal, we can die of cancer. But, as I said before, we now found an enzyme that controls that process. 
And so telomerase may be one of many in a cocktail, a cocktail of enzymes and proteins that could become a fountain of youth. Now, it could be that it's not for us. Maybe our generation is the last generation to die. Mm. But our grandkids may have the option of hitting 30 and simply stopping. They may like being 30 forever. It's wild. It's wild. And along with the fountain of youth, you also talk about digital immortality. Mm -hmm. You talk about freezing ourselves. There is so much that you address in this book. What excites you the most? Of everything you wrote about, what can you not wait to see happen? Well, this is now centuries into the future, but warp drive becomes a possibility, not anytime soon, but once we become much more powerful economically, capable of building gigantic atom smashers and things like that, uh, we have to re-examine Einstein's theory. Einstein's theories allow for gateways to other universes. They're called wormholes, like the looking glass of Alice, which connected Wonderland with the countryside of Oxford, where Alice lived, mm -hmm. a gateway. Now, it turns out that the energy necessary to harness that is out of a black hole. So don't expect any inventor to invent a wormhole machine anytime soon. But the math and physics are there. You know the movie Interstellar? Matthew McConaughey goes right through a black hole, through a wormhole. Well, guess who did the computer programming and the advising of that book? A Nobel Prize winner in physics, Kip Thorne. So we have Nobel Prize winners advising Hollywood about building starships and warp drive. So warp drive is something that we physicists are seriously looking at at the present time. We don't know yet if it's possible, but I personally think that string theory will once and for all give us an answer. Is warp drive possible? Are time machines possible? These are things that are well within the province of string theory, which is what I do for a living. Right. What scares you the most? about the future, about all these things you wrote about? It used to be overpopulation. I used to think that we're all gonna overpopulate ourselves and just like the predictions of Malthus. But what's happening now is something very interesting. As people live longer, they have fewer children. Look at Japan and Europe. Japan is actually contracting right now, much less than uh, two-point children per family, like one-point to children per family. Mm -hmm. So Europe and Japan are like train wrecks in slow motion. People are aging, they're not dying so rapidly. Young people are not having children, low levels of immigration. That's like three trains colliding in slow motion. And so we could see not the curve going like this for population, we could see an S-shaped curve. It goes up like an S and then seals off like an S. And so that is a ray of hope that perhaps we're not gonna overpopulate because as we become richer, we wanna have fewer kids. Right, so as we read through your book and discover all that's possible for the future, what's your advice to us? Well, if you take a look at the so-called 1% that has done very well recently, you realize that it's actually 30%. 30% have done very well economically. The bottom 70% have either held steady or fallen behind. Now, why? Well, 30% is also the number of people who graduate from college. So I say to people, you have to graduate from college. You have to understand computers. You don't have to be a computer whiz or a programmer, but the jobs of the future will be more technologically advanced. And so that's why I tell people, for God's sake, first graduate from college, get a degree, be part of that 30% rather than the 70% that are simply holding steady. And then in my books, I list some of the occupations that are gonna flourish in the future. Medicine is gonna flourish, for example, Biotech, because baby boomers are aging. They have disposable income mm. and they're getting older. 
and uh, you can't buy youth, but the baby boomers want to spend their money to extend their lifespan as much as possible. And so nurses are gonna be in demand, medical professionals are gonna be in demand as a consequence. And of course, people involved in the arts. Robots cannot create novels, cannot create songs, cannot create artistic things that enrich our life. Those jobs will still be happening in the future. So in my books, I make a list of all the occupations that are not gonna be roboticized. So that's important to know. You've written all of these books. You're just coming out with your new one. You're on a book tour. What's next for you when the tour is done? Well, as I mentioned before, right now we're still working on string theory. Mm -hmm. Right now we call it M-theory. It's not in its final form, but that's what I'm working now. Uh, some of the brightest minds on the earth are working on M-theory to try to complete it. It's not in its final form yet. String theory we thought was the final form, but now we realize there's one more step to go before we put it in its final form. And that's what I do for a living. We wish you all success with that. And in closing, when the first ship goes to Mars and brings human passengers, will you be on it? I don't think so. I let the heroics and the courageous efforts of these young people go to the next generation of heroes. I'll let other people be in the limelight. That's my attitude. But will you eventually, do you want to go to Mars? Uh, well, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. That is tourism, space tourism to Mars. But I think eventually it will happen. Eventually some people will want to have their honeymoon on Mars. Would you advise your kids to go to Mars? Uh, well, realize that it's still experimental, and uh, as Elon Musk said, he wants to go to Mars, but not on impact. Not on impact. What is In that other words, he doesn't want to crash land on Mars. He doesn't. <laughs> right, right. There is so much that's happening with the future. Do you ever feel like enough is enough? I feel like a child in a toy store. You love it. You just love Children it. Children <laughs> in a toy store, they never get enough. I mean, when I was a kid, all we could do is dream about sometime in the future, we'll have this and this. Now we see it. All the things that I dreamed about as a kid are coming to pass. And now kids of today, are they have their dreams and their dreams are gonna be fulfilled as well. And so I'm like a kid in a toy store, I love it. Dr. Kaku, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate your time. This is Jessica Lips for Mogul. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.